Welcome to Herbal Explorations, a podcast hosted by Wilson Lau of New Herbs. Each week, we speak to leading experts about what's happening in the herbal industry. Good morning, David. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful, Wilson. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for joining me on Herbal Explorations to discuss all things adaptogens. For those that don't know David Winston's work, he's a herbalist that blends herbs from many different herbal traditions to, cl- to create what I consider truly unique formulas at Herbalist and Alchemist. Um, I consider him the foremost expert on adaptogens. Uh, prior to reading your book, uh, Adaptogens, Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief, but after completing it, it's no longer my opinion, but fact. <laughs> so um, first question today is really, People often think about herbal knowledge as being ancient, but adaptogens are are relatively developed category. What is the history of adaptogens, David? Well, the use of tonic remedies, you know, um, superior remedies, whether we're talking about TCM or Ayurveda, and we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit, mm-hmm. is ancient. Yeah. So many of the herbs that are known as adaptogens have been used for hundreds of years, sometimes millennia. But the concept of adaptogens, the idea of adaptogens is relatively modern. The first research on adaptogens starts in 1947 in the old Soviet Union. And while the research was interesting, you know, the underlying reasons were not entirely benign, meaning the Soviets were looking for substances, initially pharmaceutical substances, not herbs. Um, that could make better soldiers and better workers and better cosmonauts so they could do what Khrushchev said, and that was to bury the West. Um, the sort of the initial research um, is done by a Soviet researcher named Dr. Lasarov, and then the research switches over to a man who's considered to be the father of adaptogenic research, and that is a man named Israel Breckman. Breckman in 1961 publishes the first paper on a quote unquote adaptogenic substance. Initially, when he starts looking at adaptogens, he starts researching Asian ginseng, which of course is grown in both Korea uh, as well as um, in China. But the challenge is at the time, even though the Chinese government and the Russians were both socialist republics, they were not friends. And the, the in fact, they're the two largest standing armies in the world on each other's borders. And so the idea of having to pay um, hard-earned Western currency to the Chinese was not something that the Russians were interested in doing. And they had did not grow uh, Panax in Russia, and it was expensive. And so they started searching for indigenous Russian plants that they could look at. And what they came up with is the plant in China that's called Acanthopanax centicosis, and everywhere else in the world is called Eleutherococcus centicosis. Mm-hmm. So Breckman publishes the first work um, on Eleutherococcus as a uh, substance that enhances what they call a nonspecific state of resistance in 1961. In 1969, um, Breckman and uh, another professor, uh, Professor Dardamoff, create the first definition of what is an adaptogen. So their initial definition, which was formulated more than 50 years ago, was number one, an adaptogen is a substance that is relatively non-toxic in a normal therapeutic dose. 
Number two, it creates a nonspecific state of resistance, meaning it helps you to resist stress regardless of the cause. So it could be psychological stress, uh, environmental stress, physiological stress. It doesn't matter what the cause. It helps you to handle stress more effectively and more appropriately. And thirdly, it has what would be considered a systemic amphoteric effect, meaning it helps to normalize systemic function on a wide range of organs and tissues in the body. So that was the initial definition of an adaptogen. But, and one of the challenges is, is that a lot of people are still using that definition for what is or is not an adaptogen. But as I said, that definition was created more than 50 years ago and time has not stood still. And in the intervening 50, at this point, 53 years, there have been additional factors that have been added in because we now know more about what makes something an adaptogen. So um, we see a lot of, in fact, the book that you mentioned, the, the book Adaptogens Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief, I originally, the first edition was published in 2007, the second edition in 2019. And the reason I originally wrote that book, or at least one of the major reasons, was I got tired of people calling herbs adaptogens that aren't adaptogens. And in fact, people will be very surprised to know there are only eight or nine herbs that are well-researched adaptogens, meaning we have really good evidence that they indeed are adaptogens. We have another maybe five or six that I would call probable adaptogens, meaning the evidence is not quite as strong, but I strongly suspect based on what research there is that they are indeed adaptogens. And then we have maybe another 10 or 12 herbs, and the list is actually probably slightly larger than that, but a lot of the, uh, there's some very obscure plants that, that may be adaptogens, but are just not widely available. But there's another 10 or 12, including things like maca mm -hmm. and rishi, you know, which everybody thinks is adaptogen, where the evidence, I call them possible adaptogens, because the evidence for them actually being adaptogens is really poor. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they're not great herbs. It just means they do not fit the actual definition of an adaptogen. And one of the challenges is, and, and I see this a lot in the herbal community and probably in the, you know, TCM community and whatever, and in the general public for sure, is that people have this idea, well, I'm going to sort of define it however I want to. Well, the challenge is this term adaptogens didn't come from TCM. It didn't come from Ayurveda. It didn't come from Yunani Tib. It didn't come from the herbal community. It came from science. And so they get to define, somebody said to me one time, well, how come, you know, why do scientists get to determine what an adaptogen is? Because they came up with the whole concept in the first place. And so it is really, I think, vitally important. And that, of course, is another reason why I, I wrote the book is to define what is and is not an adaptogen. When I started seeing people calling cranberries adaptogens, or I see all these products in the marketplace, and there are there are shampoos with adaptogens in it. Adaptogens, for the most part, are not going to help your hair or your scalp. <laughs> you know, so, and if it did, look, I mean. <laughs> you and I, you and I. I, I yeah. think, you know, one of the things that what, what we see from a marketing point of view is that they want to say everything is something, right? And they right. tend to misclassify things. And I, I think you said it very succinctly, just because it's a hybrid car doesn't make it electric car. I mean, those are two different things, right? They're, they they both have capacity to run on electricity. Um, one has this, each has their own advantages, but it doesn't make it the same thing, right? We can't conflate the two, although they both mm -hmm. use electricity to run the system. And in fact, 
you know, even a, you know, gas powered car uses electricity to run some of the systems, right? It's still not mm -hmm. the same thing. Um, so I think that's really key is like, hey, what are we really talking about? And just like you, probably some things that drive me nuts is like this overuse of things that don't really make sense. Sure, is there adaptogen in your shampoo? Yes, but will it work as adaptogen? No, right? Like, yeah, it's like, you know, I see a label like the water is gluten free. Well, where's, where's the gluten coming from in this water? Like, did you add it in? But it's... <laughs> So I totally agree with you. It's mind boggling. But back to adaptogens. What mm -hmm. you know in your in your book, you, you mentioned, you know, eight or nine, you know, for sure adaptogens. Can you just mm -hmm. list them off quickly and then um just so the audience has an idea and then they can read more in about what they are. So we have we have Asian ginseng, whether you know, and some people, you know, will say Korean ginseng, Chinese ginseng, they're the same plant. You know, there's different strains and there's different uh, processing techniques, whether it's, you know, red or white ginseng. And there are within China, there's different grades, you know, of ginseng and things like that. But so number one, Asian ginseng, mm -hmm. American ginseng, the Panax quinquefolius, uh, ashwagandha from India. Uh, then we have um, Shizandra Uetsu from mm -hmm. China. Uh, we have Eleuthero. Um, it used to be called, when it was first introduced to the United States, they called it Siberian ginseng, which is a misnomer. It is mm -hmm. not a Panax species, even though it is in the Aureliaceae family, it is not ginseng. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, since people knew ginseng, attaching the name again was good marketing. But now actually, I mean, well, I could call it that um, uh, for sale. You cannot call it that. They actually passed a law going back some years pushed by the Wisconsin ginseng growers to make it illegal to call Eleuthero uh, Siberian ginseng, which I'm fine with because it, it again, is not a ginseng. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, the Ayurvedic herb Shilajit. Mm -hmm. We also have uh, Rhodiola. Uh, we have Rapunticum, mm -hmm. and what am I leaving out? I, I something. Oh, Cordyceps. Cordyceps. So those are basically the well-researched adaptogens. Mm -hmm. Now there are a number of other plants that um, there is preliminary evidence suggesting they are indeed adaptogens. So, for instance, holy basil would be in that category. Or we also have things like um, uh, Soyang and uh, Rukang Rong. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are all probable adaptogens. Uh, Shatavari from Ayurveda, in the Ayurvedic tradition. I would mm -hmm. say all of those are most likely adaptogens. We just don't have the same level of evidence we have for those first eight or nine plants. And then, as I said, there's a whole bunch of things that are possible adaptogens, but the evidence is really poor. And then what I did when I wrote the, the second edition of the book, I said, well, you know, there's all these plants that are really wonderful, great remedies. And in fact, maybe in a moment, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. There are these great remedies, but they just don't fit the definition of adaptogen, which I guess I should actually give everybody. So what is an adaptogen? Okay, so we started off by talking about the fact that the initial definition, non-toxic and normal therapeutic dose, and we're not talking about allergic reaction because anybody can have an idiosyncratic or allergic reaction, anything. But for the average person, it is non-toxic in the normal therapeutic dose. It creates a non-specific state of resistance, and it has a systemic balancing or amphoteric effect. That is all still true, but that is not enough to make something an adaptogen. Many plants that are not adaptogens will do all three of those things. 
So what makes it an adaptogen? Number one, it works through one of the two master control systems in the body, the HPA axis, that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the interface between the endocrine system, the nervous system, the immune system, the gut brain, so the digestive system, male and female reproductive system, cardiovascular system, including the sort of hormonal aspect of the heart, which was only discovered about 25 or 30 years ago, all that interface, okay, is the HPA axis. And then the SAS is the other control system, which is the sympathoadrenal system, which is your fight or flight. So the HPA deals with chronic stress primarily, whereas the SAS primarily deals with acute stress. So adaptogens work through one or both of those systems. So that information came out in the 1990s. Then they discovered around 2000, it was just a couple of years after I published the first edition of the book. So around 2009 to 2012, in that time frame, they came up with some additional information about what makes something an adaptogen. And what they figured out was adaptogens also work on a cellular level. So not just through organs or endocrine or, but they're also working on individually on a cellular level. And what they do is they upregulate what are called uh, molecular chaperones, specifically um, uh, heat shock proteins or four heat shock proteins that it's known to upregulate, uh, a forkhead protein known as FOXO, uh, neuropeptide Y. And what do these things do? When you are under stress, your body increases production of all of these compounds, and it acts a little bit like it protects you from stress. Mm -hmm. And so what we now understand is adaptogens work a little bit like a stress vaccine. So it, unlike a vaccine, you know, the effect is not necessarily long lasting. You stop taking adaptogens and the effect over a couple of weeks is going to wear off. So it's not a long lasting effect. But it, it basically says to your body, stress is coming, get ready, and it increases production of all these compounds, which have broad-reaching effect on the body. They inhibit addiction. They reduce pain. Uh, they help prevent misfolding of uh, proteins when you're doing DNA synthesis. Uh, they increase neuroplasticity, especially uh, neuropeptide Y. I mean, they have a wide range of activities in the body. So for a nerve to be an adaptogen, it also has to upregulate these compounds. And in the process, they do one other thing because, you know, stress will upregulate those things. Mm -hmm. But stress also increases production of stress hormones such as cortisol. Mm -hmm. One of the things adaptogens do is they prevent uh, increase of cortisol levels and they help prevent cortisol, uh, uh, elevated cortisol induced mitochondrial dysfunction. So with a lot of conditions like chronic fatigue, immune deficiency syndrome, or fibromyalgia, which at their root, at least clinically from my perspective, but there's also research to back this up, are really chronic sleep disorders and HPA axis disorders. And so um, basically, that's one of the reasons adaptogens can be so incredibly useful for treating those types of conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, um, now that you mentioned that uh, there's a lot of research coming out about uh, red ginseng, panacea mm -hmm. that's been steamed and how it helps uh, improve the quality of sleep and through that same kind of mechanism. Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting from me being based in TCM or traditional Chinese medicine is the difference between red and white ginseng and American ginseng, which is American ginseng is actually a different species, but especially with the white and red ginseng, whether it's from Korea, China, or um, wherever it may be grown, um, but those are the two primary places. 
Now Russia has a little bit of a ginseng garden there as well. Uh, but really, is it that we really should be looking at these adaptogens? Not okay. If it's a true adaptogen, like one of the ginsengs, mm-hmm. are we also looking at a secondary set of characteristics? Like, hey, American ginseng is good for this. You know, white Chinese ginseng is good for that. Red Chinese ginseng is good for that. To pick the right adaptogen for for your for your needs, right? For the particular well, person's needs, right? It's not just hey, let me just get any adaptogen. Let me just get some psilocybin or. Right. It's really about picking the right one for your condition and what right. your needs are. Well, that was another reason I wrote the book. Uh, but prior to COVID, I used to go over and teach in Europe almost every year. I'd be in Ireland or the UK or some other country. Um, and when I would teach in the UK, um, there was some really, still are some really good herbal programs. Or if we were in the UK, it would be herbal. Uh, mm-hmm. It would be uh, herbal programs. Um, and but a lot of times their use of the materia medica, the materials of medicine was a little bit, how shall I say this, um, unsophisticated. So mm-hmm. somebody say, oh, you need an adaptogen, give them a luthero. It was like a luthero was the standard adaptogen for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, adaptogens, like any category of herbs, are not a one size fits all phenomenon. So does everybody need an adaptogen? No. If you are healthy and you're not in a really stressful situation, you probably don't need any adaptogen. So it's not like everybody needs an adaptogen. But if you do need an adaptogen, then you have to look at who needs it. So it's more about treating the person rather than the disease. And so the more you can individualize treatment. So we have adaptogens that are heating or we have adaptogens that are cooling. We have adaptogens that are stimulating. We have adaptogens that are calming. We have adaptogens that are nourishing. We have adaptogens that are moistening. We have adaptogens that are drying. So give an example, rhodiola. Rhodiola is a stimulating adaptogen. In fact, I would put it, you know, I I sort of, red ginseng and rhodiola are the two most stimulating adaptogens, Mm -hmm. but they're very different. Mm -hmm. Red ginseng is deeply nourishing. And Mm -hmm. so that balances out the stimulating effect because it's also deeply nourishing to the body, but rhodiola is not nourishing at all. It's just stimulating. And so rhodiola, for instance, you don't want to give it to the person, you know, if you have a a patient and they are um, the kind of person who tells you if they have even a cup of tea after lunch or they eat a little square of chocolate, they're so stimulated they can't sleep at night. Don't give rhodiola to that person. They'll be up all night. Rhodiola is also incredibly drying. So if you have anybody with yin deficiency, dryness, dry skin, dry mouth, dry eyes, vaginal dryness, lack of synovial fluid in the joints, any type of, you know, dry cough, uh, furred tongue. If you have patterns like that, rhodiola is really inappropriate for that person. And so it's about figuring out which adaptogen. And then the other thing I would point out is that in all traditional systems of medicine, whether we are talking about TCM, Ayurveda, Unani Tib, Campo, Jammu, uh, Siddha, uh, Tibetan medicine, physiomedicalism, herbs are used in complex formulas. Why? Because we're dealing with complex people with complex problems. And so the sort of Western idea of using a single herb at a time is great in the sense for research. For Mm -hmm. research, it's really useful because it really gives you clear information about a specific herb. But clinically, herbs are used in formulas. And so you're probably going to be using not only an adaptogen, but you're also going to probably mix it in with other herbs that it works well with. And I call them companion herbs. Mm -hmm. So for instance, some of the categories of companion herbs for adaptogens are what are known as nervines, which are the nerve tonics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have things like nootropics, which are cerebral tonics. We have the category, which I kind of created, which I call 
uh, restorative tonics. And restorative tonics are many of them. They're great herbs. Um, you know, Guangxi, astragalus is a great restorative tonic. It just isn't an adaptogen. Or Shu Di Huang, processed Romania, great herb, just not an adaptogen. Amla fruit, goji berry, you know, they're wonderful herbs. The fact that they're not adaptogens, that they don't meet the definition of adaptogen doesn't make them any less useful. It just, you know, so I, in a sense, in the book created my own category to just sort of say, okay, there are these wonderful herbs that are really useful. And they may be kidney yang tonics or chi tonics in TCM or uh, rasayanas in Ayurveda. And that's the point I actually wanted to make earlier. You know, in TCM, kidney yang tonics, chi tonics, blood tonics, these are classic, you know, categories. In Ayurveda, you have rasayanas and medhya rasayanas, and they're classic categories. Some of the herbs in each of those categories are adaptogens. Mm -hmm. but many herbs that are in those categories are also not adaptogens. And so you cannot make that assumption based on tradition, what is and is not an adaptogen. Yes, and I think, you know, that's an excellent um, explanation of that. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the business of herbs and botanicals, visit newherbs.com. To keep listening to great episodes, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, or Spotify, and make sure to give us a rating too. 